Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm Lucy Cairns, an associate at Global Council. Today, I'm joined by Rob Regglesworth, ecologist and innovation lead at the Environment Bank. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here today. We're really excited to have you. Um, would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the work you do in your organisation? Thanks for having me, Lucy. Yes, yeah, so as you said, I'm Associate Ecologist and Innovation Lead here at Environment Bank. I've actually been here since 2018. So I joined after being a consultant ecologist for around six or seven years prior to that, working kind of in the development sector in England and really through a a frustration with the the ecology mitigation that was taking place through the planning system and the way that everything was done, kind of acting as a, a last line of defense, almost the way that uh, ecology legislation was was done in those days and still is done um, t- till this day, really. But we'll, we'll call on to how that's changing, uh, I'm sure, in a bit. Yeah, Environment Bank was at the time was quite a small company was a niche consultancy working in the emerging area of biodiversity net gain in a couple of the local planning authorities in England that had already adopted biodiversity net gain policy into their their planning policy. So it was early days, but I've been here since then and the team has grown from around six of us to now almost 70. So yeah, it's been been quite a journey seeing the company grow and uh, it's all around really this biodiversity net gain legislation that's about to go live in England. And then we've been expanding into other areas, including voluntary biodiversity credits as well. So yeah, I provide the ecology expertise or some of the ecology expertise for those products. And then also, yeah, the innovation side of things as well. Fantastic. So we actually met in New York Climate Week and you were telling me about what you did there. And I just thought, given your experience, it'd be fantastic to have you here and talk a little bit more about biodiversity net gain and biodiversity credits. So firstly, in this episode, we're going to do a bit of a wash up on New York Climate Week and talk a bit about the huge focus that we saw there on nature. And then we're going to pivot away and talk a bit more about what's actually happening in the UK at the moment with biodiversity net gain which is, as you say, this new piece of legislation that's coming into force in the new year. And that's going to require developers of all kinds, commercial, housing, infrastructure of national importance to make a 10% net increase on biodiversity. I also think it'd be useful to spend a bit of time here reflecting on some of the delays that we've seen on this legislation and then more broadly the sort of hesitancy that we see both in the UK and the EU about pursuing ambitious nature policy um, given run-up to elections. Uh, And then lastly, we're going to talk about, as you mentioned, the voluntary biodiversity credit, which is a very exciting announcement that you guys made in New York and all the progress that's being made in this space. So to kick us off, New York Climate Week. It was my first Climate Week and my first time in New York. So I was very excited to be there with colleagues. And I'm sure you felt the same. It was just such a great energy. There were so many interesting panels, but I was most blown away by how much of a focus there was on nature this year. There were a ton of nature-related events, but even in the non-nature-specific events, everyone was talking about nature and biodiversity and how they should be thinking about it. So how did you find Climate Week and what were some of your key takeaways? 
it was my first time at New York Climate Week as well. And I didn't really know what to expect when I went out there. I'd kind of heard things about it and heard it was quite a big deal. But I think I'd underestimated just how much of a big deal it is. It really does take over the entire city for the whole week. It's a festival type uh, atmosphere, a kind of conference combined with festival, I guess. And the, the additional energy that kind of came into the event due to protests and things like that that were going on in New York at the same time, there was this real energy and momentum behind the event. And you're correct. I think when I was speaking to people who'd been in previous years, who, who there's some people had been for the last several years, when they mentioned nature events and the nature side of, of climate, they, they were talking about it being refined to small fringe events, side events, or, or maybe you'd have to be in the know or in some kind of underground nature WhatsApp group or something to find out about some of those events. It was really a, a side to the main climate talks at Climate Week, but this time it, it was different and nature was really front and center, even and the made stages, nature-based solutions were being talked about across the board and nature was on the agenda at most of the event hubs. And there was even a nature positive hub as well, which I think is where we met, which had talks on all through the week about nature. So it was, it was a real pivotal moment. And I think for me as well, the, and for a lot of people that were there, they said a landmark moment for them was the launch of the task force for nature-related financial disclosure. So the TNFD framework, which was launched uh, on Wall Street, which was this bizarre kind of meeting of worlds where Wall Street was transformed into a TNFD hub for a couple of hours. And there were the sounds of nature being played through speakers. There were images of wildlife and habitats on the screens within the stock exchange. Uh, I didn't get a chance to go to that. It was quite an exclusive event, but our CEO James Cross, uh, he was there, and with a loads of other stakeholders from around the world. And yeah, it was this, as I say, meeting of worlds where it really felt like nature was was being taken seriously by the financial sector. And hopefully, it wasn't just a uh, a token gesture, but it did feel like something had had changed. And I think being in New York as well, you couldn't, in some ways, you couldn't be further from. Some of these places that we talk about in the industry, we work, the projects we work on, you're in a very urban center, but it's where a lot of the companies who have impacts on nature, who depend on nature are, are based. So it was, it was interesting to have the event there and to, and to see all these big companies finally on panels, taking part in discussions and talking about how they are starting to see just how dependent they are on nature uh, and also to start evaluating the risks, the very real risks there are to their businesses if they don't take nature more seriously. I completely agree. I mean, everyone was raving about the TNFD launch event. And I think actually broadening it out from, actually, I might just take a moment for listeners to explain what the TNFD is. So the TNFD is a voluntary disclosure framework, which gives recommendations for how companies and financial institutions can report on their nature-related risks, impacts, opportunities and dependencies. It takes its inspiration from its predecessor, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. 
which has been made mandatory in several jurisdictions, including the UK. Um, The TNFD in comparison is currently a voluntary framework, but it's seen huge momentum behind it and it's been built very quickly and there's lots of companies who have expressed a lot of interest and I think some companies, I think GSK, have already committed to making um, TNFD aligned disclosures in the next couple of years. So this is really a pivotal moment in the nature space. But I think that's, I know that you spoke about when we met that you guys had had some work working with the TNFD and so be really interested to think a little bit more about the disclosure framework and you know, do you think that this is it's largely in media being considered like a tipping point for nature and that do you think this is going to have the effect it's intended to have? Or and then there were also ongoing discussions about actually the administrative burden associated with these types of disclosures. So, I mean, to what extent do you think that disclosure is an effective route to go down for actually addressing nature? I think you mentioned we were involved in uh, a lot of the discussions around building this framework and it it wasn't uh, just us. There were hundreds of stakeholders and companies across the board that were involved in these discussions that were going on since 2020 in building this framework, as you say, uh, looking very much at the, the TCFD and learning from what was done there. And carbon was a big enough challenge and nature by its very nature is an even bigger challenge. And there was a a danger that if things were if we discussed it for too long, it would get bogged down in the it would get too complicated, and it's always going to be there's always going to be imperfections in the way that we measure and we disclose um, impacts dependencies on on nature and biodiversity because it's such a difficult thing to to pin down because it's it's local it moves around it's it's different to carbon in in that way but it's it's really important that companies do start taking it more seriously and it as someone working in nature in ecology it kind of it shocks me when some of these big multidisciplinary companies still had no awareness of quite how dependent they are are on nature and We've seen lots of statistics accompanying the TNFD launch, such as over half of GDP being either moderately or highly dependent on nature. And, you know, that's just moderately and highly dependent on nature. All business is dependent on nature in, in some way when you get down to the to the detail. So yeah, disclosure obviously is is one step and it's going to be a a tricky process, particularly for these big companies that have huge supply chains across the world. And luckily, TCFD has helped get started on that journey because a lot of them have been looking at their supply chains, have been trying to understand just where those impacts are. So we're not starting from from the start, but it's still going to be difficult. And what the TNFD does is it does it sets out these metrics. It walks companies through the process of assessing those risks and dependencies and then that's the first step there's a, they call it the leap approach which is locate evaluate assess and then prepare so those are the steps um, to go through for all of these companies and yeah disclosure is the first step but obviously disclosure is great ever action is obviously what's really required and the hope is that yeah we won't just be disclosing those impacts and uh, and putting them down on paper, but it will lead to to action because we can't really hang around. And a lot of the the targets that have been set as well in the 
global biodiversity framework are quite uh, urgent and, uh, and on the horizon already with a lot of targets set for 2030. So yeah, disclosure is the first step to, uh, towards uh, action. And I think what I'm hearing is we can't do anything without the data. Firstly, companies need to you know, do something they've never been required to do before, which is look into their supply chains and see those interactions. And as you say, that leap methodology, it's very rigorous and you don't have to disclose on every part of it. And so I think they found quite a nice balance between the amount you have to disclose. But at the end of the day, you do have to do that research and look into your supply chains, which is a complex and new thing that companies will have to navigate. And there will always be this this pushback about the amount of money and time that gets spent put into disclosure versus action. I mean, I think I was listening to a panel in New York, actually, and someone said something like, for every dollar I spend on disclosure, it's one not spent on mitigation. And to all extent, I don't think that's completely true because at the end of the day, good data underpins um, good action. But I understand where he's coming from that we need to make sure that as these disclosures you know, potentially get translated into national legislation that they're harmonised and so that companies aren't having to deal with competing requirements across different jurisdictions and just really try and make this as simple as possible for what is, could be quite a complicated thing. But I think we could spend a long time on this disclosure point, but I do want to um, go on to other things. So on to biodiversity net gain. So just a quick explainer, biodiversity net gain is a new piece of legislation that's coming into force in England in January 2024, and it's going to require developers to prove a 10% biodiversity net increase. Rob, is there anything you wanted to add to that description of what biodiversity net gain is and how it works? And then also particularly why you think this is such an exciting new development in the UK and what, what that might mean for, for nature acceleration? I mentioned at the start when I did my introduction that the reason I moved to the environment back in the first place is a frustration with how biodiversity and, and nature was being assessed and mitigated in the planning process. I was just seeing what I thought as the kind of gradual erosion of parts of the of the countryside through development and a lot of the legislation was very much that last line of defense. It was species focused so everyone knows about great crested newts and and bats in the development world and how an ecologist spend or have spent a lot of time surveying these very specific species because that's the way that the legislation has has pushed us because it's it's an illegal activity to disturb or to destroy the the habitats of those particular species so that's the way that things have been focused and what biodiversity net gain does is it changes things to take more of a, a focus on habitats. It it changes the lens of how we look at biodiversity in the development sector. And the key thing for me is the measurable aspect. So the legislation aims to leave leave biodiversity in a measurably better way than it was in the start. So providing a that's this ten percent net gain really what is underpinning that is this metric that DEFRA and Natural England have been working on for, for quite a while now. We're on to version 4.1, I think, is the, the version that we're, we're on now. So it's been a, a work in progress over almost 10 years since the first metric was developed with uh, Warwickshire Council, uh, yeah, almost 10 years ago. And uh, once you've got a metric that is agreed across the board, that allows you to have a, what is uh, you know, an offsetting market effectively and it, it 
so first of all, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be working through the mitigation hierarchy and you're going to be able to see in a measurable way, what is on the development site from the start. So that means that you can then avoid the, the best habitats that we've got, because the easiest way to stop the decline of nature through development is obviously to avoid the best habitats that we've got. So that will be a massive help because too often, um, developers through no fault of their own would potentially get quite far down the line through either purchasing a site or um, working through the planning process before they were told that you know, by a planning officer or whoever it might be that the site they were planning to develop on is actually quite um, quite important. So what it does is it allows people to see on paper what a site is worth, avoid then mitigate where they cannot avoid, but it, it allows them to see what that impact is. And if they do have to offset in the end, then it's clear just how much is required to offset. And it's, it makes sure that whoever's looking at it, it's, it's a figure that you can stand behind. I think it's, it's really going to be a change in how we approach um, nature in the planning process. Yeah, definitely. I was actually at home in Cambridge visiting my mum this weekend and I was telling her about this podcast and what it was on and she in quite a savvy way jumped straight to the crux of what this debate is which is the whole concept of offsetting I think so you know there's a lot of criticism that biodiversity net gain could potentially be a bit of a license to to destroy as it were because you could justify potentially removing a habitat in one location where you're developing because you can then develop it elsewhere now and that is something that's regularly brought up as a a criticism I thought I said to her I was like well you've got to wait until the podcast because this is going to be a key question that Rob is going to answer much better than me so yeah it really interested to hear your thoughts on this kind of slightly tricky topic of offsetting and um, yeah, how you guys are thinking about that. Yeah, it is one of the trickiest um, points and I'll try my best to, to answer it. But um, I would say, first of all, that the, the loss of nature has been occurring through development for a long time. It just hasn't been measured and accounted for. So as soon as you bring in the possibility of offsetting to compensate for loss, it suddenly seems like a, a license to, to trash. But that license to trash has, has already been there in some ways because it's been left to planning appeal or the local residents to kind of fight the case. But with it's very much a, this is what the developer says or what their ecologists say versus what we think and that kind of intangible value of of what we believe the the value of the site is and what this metric allows you to do is if there is a site of value um, in the planning process that you think shouldn't be destroyed because it's got vital habitats there then it allows a much more open dialogue from the start and I really do think that through this we need to be really transparent with everything and bring all the stakeholders in as early as possible and kind of you know, developers should be able to put those put these figures down and stand behind them and show exactly the steps they're going through to make sure that, you know, as the policy says, that nature is left in a better way. You know, there's a net gain for nature um, after the development's taken place and they, they need to be able to do that and need to be able to show that they've been through the steps of the mitigation hierarchy. So if it is a, a valuable habitat, have they taken all the necessary steps 
to avoid? Have they taken all the necessary steps to mitigate? And then finally, if that isn't possible, then you have to have a really good reason. And then they're going to have to compensate. And what I would say to the critics out there is, you know, you don't have to, I don't want everyone to have to become a master of the the metric and kind of know all the ins and outs. But what it does do on a broad level is it really does penalize the loss of the val- uh, kind of valuable habitats. It doesn't allow you to even uh, offset for irreplaceable habitats. So we're talking ancient woodland and a few other kind of really high value habitats that are essentially almost impossible to recreate. But then beyond that, for these high distinctiveness, these rare habitats, if you were to run them through the calculator and try and offset those habitats, the amount of area you would need to do that would be huge because the metric does a few clever things. It adds in a difficulty factor. So if you're trying to offset a woodland, it says, well, to do that, it's going to take you at least 30 years even to get to a poor quality woodland and to offset maybe a, a hectare of woodland on a development, you're going to need 20, 30 hectares potentially on an offsite site. And then you're also going to have to factor in all these other elements, which make it really, really difficult to do. And I, I do believe that it's going to be much more difficult than it was in the past to lose really important habitats. That's good to hear. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, stepping back from maybe a bit more of the nitty gritty on biodiversity net gain and into, I guess, maybe more of the, the politics space. Um, so when we were in New York, we saw in the UK, I mean, there was significant rollbacks on various targets, we had delays on targets of electric vehicles, heat pumps, energy efficiency. And then last month, we also saw admittedly a short delay, but a delay nonetheless on biodiversity net gain, which was meant to come into force in November in a couple of weeks time, but has been pushed back to January. And over the summer, also in the EU, we've seen a lot of, again, hesitancy on nature files in particular. We're getting a lot of resistance about going through in their most ambitious form because of concerns that they have conflicting priorities with, given our current food security and energy security crisis. I think it's quite interesting to kind of reflect more generally on these kind of two sides that we're seeing. On one hand, we have loads of momentum in the private sector with uh, the TNFD, the launch of science-based targets for nature, biodiversity, voluntary biodiversity credits, which we'll get onto in a minute. But then on the public sector side, there seems to be much more of a hesitancy and, and worry about imposing additional requirements on on companies and and on people in the run-up to elections. So I think it's useful to talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you think this is a trend that we should be concerned about? Or do you think that actually the public sector are going to accelerate on nature regardless of what's done at the government level? It was really interesting in, in New York when, as we said at the start, there was this excitement and noise from the private sector about how everyone was going to be working together and collaborating to drive more investment into into nature recovery and into nature conservation. And then at the same time, I mean, I would flick on the Republican debate, for example, on the TV, and it couldn't, it felt like it couldn't be further from the, well, it was the topic of discussion, but not for the right reasons in terms of climate change often. Or there was the news from the UK whilst Climate Week was going on that biodiversity net gain was being pushed back. And there was the, um, 
the news around nutrient neutrality as well uh, earlier on. So it's an interesting one that these two things seem to be conflicting in a way that political cycles are are faster than maybe some of the thinking that's going on in the in the private sector. And it really what gives me hope anyway is this fact that businesses are realizing that they are dependent on nature, that they the risks to operation, to ongoing success of their businesses, their, you know, their stock price, whatever it might be, are genuinely at risk if they don't start taking nature more seriously. It could be uh, an agricultural company, a food producer who is worried about fire risk in uh, the US or wherever they, they grow their products. Or it could be a fashion company that are worried about the lack of water that they need for their products and things like that. So that's what gives me hope in a, in a way is that that is finally being recognized and, and that's going to despite whatever happens politically, there's going to be purely from a voluntary side, uh, there's going to be a, a significant increase in, in action. But I think that can only take us so far and we're going to need, the voluntary is going to need to become compliance eventually at some point if we're going to get to where we need to get to in terms of targets and, uh, and the world that we want to see. I think this sort of politicization of the nature and climate debate is something new that we're seeing and it's an inevitable thing. I mean, setting targets is just the easiest and first stage and that took was difficult enough. And now we're really getting to this point of implementation and the realities are difficult and it's expensive and complicated to transition. So, but it's, it is a strange, I agree, it's a strange thing where for the first time, really, it seems to be the private sector are, you know, running away with this ahead of where regulation is at. And it's, it'll be interesting to see the extent to which, you know, a regulatory impetus is, impetus is actually the drive for action on nature or whether the private sector are kind of ahead and they've seen what's happened with climate and understand that this is, this is coming and they need to get ahead. It's also being seen by some as a potential strategic advantage. Yeah, if you're, if they, they've seen what's happened with climate, as you say, frameworks becoming mandatory eventually and CSRD in Europe becoming mandatory as well. So this is the direction of travel. Um, and so companies that are a bit more savvy are kind of, they know that this is eventually coming down the path at some point. So moving now, getting everything, getting all the ducks in a row to use an ecology pun, it's, it's worth doing and there is potentially an advantage. Um, there is all these weird kind of, I'm trying to tap into business advantage and business strategy and using that as a, as a real way to, to drive more uh, finance into, into nature recovery. But I think it's a win-win for everyone, a genuine win-win if everyone takes it seriously. It's, uh, it's not going to be easy, but yeah, we'll, We'll have a much better world at the end of it if we all uh, we all work towards the the goals. Um, speaking of finance into nature recovery, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on your voluntary biodiversity credits. So in New York, you guys made the exciting announcement that you're going to be launching new voluntary biodiversity credits, and it would be really great to hear a bit more about how these credits differ from what we've been talking about in terms of biodiversity net gain units and how the product's been going since the launch. New York was our launch onto the 
the global stage as it were so we've been working in biodiversity net gain which is this compliance market which is emerging in in the uk so it's going to be legislated and there's an offsetting element to that as well but there's also an emerging market globally uh, of voluntary uh, credits or of, of companies wanting to become nature positive so it's this is the idea of a a nature version of of net zero so starting to move towards this place where companies aren't taking away from nature but they're they're actually giving back in a in a measurable way so we were kind of not expecting this space to evolve as quickly as it has it's really taken off in the last couple of years and you've got all these different ideas forming and you've got different metrics again that are appearing people are saying we should measure biodiversity impacts this way and there's and other people are saying that that's missing things that we should we should do it in another way but because this isn't an offsetting market so it's completely voluntary so that's probably the key thing to to outline to listeners at first it's it's a way for companies to contribute towards nature restoration or conservation in a way that goes you know outside of their supply chain really that goes above and beyond so it's a statement it's a way for big corporations to say we're we're taking this seriously this isn't offsetting this isn't the solution but it's it's a way to get moving now because we've got a long long way to go this question of demand always comes up when i talk about voluntary biodiversity credits i mean it's very clear to see that lots of people will be buying biodiversity units under biodiversity net gain and people are already buying carbon offsets because they're offsets but as you say the crucial difference here is that a biodiversity credit is neither of those two things it's not a compliance and it's not an offset so you know what is the key driver of demand here is it is it as you say a kind of that people really resonate with biodiversity in their supply chains or when you're talking to to buyers like what what are the things that's coming up most we thought that potentially there would be a bit of a lag in terms of the TNFD coming in and there's going to be this process of assessing and and seeing what the impacts are really analyzing what's happening throughout the supply chain but the reality is a lot of these companies are already well on that journey through TCFD and already have a fairly good idea and are already in a lot of cases working on those solutions and are already mitigating already have projects in place and uh, and ideas moving forward so they're already in a place where they're starting to think about contributing beyond that as well so we were probably not expecting to have some of the conversations that we are doing quite so early on but i think it's it, there's a real yeah tangible element to nature that can be tapped into in terms of at board level or with stakeholders or even the, the general public to when you're doing a nature recovery project what that means in terms of the uplift and and how that can contribute towards a an area is is really a, a nice narrative and something that can uh, can be explained quite easily and can be enhanced through good data and and things like that and i think what companies are saying is that they they don't want to wait until they've done the entire tnfd process before they start thinking about projects because then those projects might already be assigned or they, there's only so many projects out there what we are seeing is kind of on the supply side of projects that there is there's a lack of potentially good quality projects so 
companies are just starting to have those conversations with us, making sure that they've got things lined up. We can work alongside them to make sure that the projects that we develop fit with their goals and what makes sense to their business. Or, you know, they might have really important targets for access to nature for people, or they might want to be able to engage their staff with the site or have a, this tangible project that they can they can talk about in their marketing or PR or whatever it might be. So yeah, we, it's it's not a case of just jumping to um, to restoration and forgetting everything else, which some people might think is what's happening. And every company that we've spoken to is either already on that journey with TNFD and assessing and and mitigating impacts already, and they're they're just thinking about how they can contribute beyond that. Fantastic. Well, final question to finish up. Um, this year has seen a huge focus on nature. I mean, as we've talked about, we've had the TNFD, we've got lots of momentum behind biodiversity credits, got biodiversity net gain and, and many, many other things. And what are you most excited for coming down the line in 2024 in the run up to um, the Convention on Biological Diversity COP16, which is next year? Is there anything that you think 2024 will, will, will see a similar intensity of momentum? I hope we do see a continuation of the momentum that we've we've seen. I, I am hopeful. I think what we need to do is to, I think we'll benefit from, although there's a lot of crossover and they are intrinsically linked, trying to keep the carbon conversation and the nature conversation kind of separate in a way. I know it sounds a bit odd, but I think if we, there's a lot of work already going on in in carbon and there's nature-based solutions projects and but there's a lot of history in in that kind of in that market and a lot of noise already and why i wouldn't want to see is this in this really enthusiasm and this new funding that's coming into nature recovery through this new emerging voluntary biodiversity credit market i don't want that to get confused with with what's been happening in in carbon so it's a difficult one but i i think what we're advocating for is trying to Although they're intrinsically linked, trying to keep them slightly separate. So that's um, my yeah, being positive and what I'm looking forward to, <laughs> rather than uh, that sounded like it was what I'm not looking forward to. But yeah, I'm hopeful that if we do keep these things separate, that it's going to really enhance the conversation around nature, and nature will become more and more at the forefront of these conversations around environmental recovery. Because you know, without tackling the nature problem we will we won't tackle the the climate problem so my main hope is that nature is continues to become at the center of a lot of these uh, these conversations and uh, it doesn't just become an add-on for climate it, it's its own thing and it gets the funding and the focus that it it deserves that's a very hopeful note to end on thank you so much for speaking with me today it's been really interesting to hear about oil work and take a bit of a deep dive into the types of things that are happening in the UK and the work that you guys are doing. So thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Lucy. If you, your business or your investment are exposed to or looking to engage with biodiversity net gain, do not hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details for myself or the sectoral team on our website at www.global-council.com or in the podcast notes.